Travis Bader, and this is the Silvercore Podcast. Silvercore has been providing its members with the skills and knowledge necessary to be confident and proficient in the outdoors for over 20 years, and we make it easier for people to deepen their connection to the natural world. If you enjoy the positive and educational content we provide, please let others know by sharing, commenting, and following so that you can join in on everything that Silvercore stands for. If you'd like to learn more about becoming a member of the Silvercore Club and community, visit our website at silvercore.ca. Today's guest is a retired Canadian Special Forces JTF-2 sniper. We both acknowledge the limitations presented by recording a podcast remotely, and to that end, we've been trying to coordinate an in-person discussion for quite some time now. So here we are, another milestone for the Silvercore podcast, recording its first both audio and video on location podcast. Welcome to the Silvercore podcast, Sean Taylor. Outstanding. Thanks so much for having me. This is amazing. Thank you so much for having me into your home. This is a beautiful place that you live in. In fact, I'm a little envious of the uh, the city you're in, and we're going to be checking it out right now. I think uh, maybe a move might be in order in uh, in the not-too-distant future. We'll, well, let, well, let me know. I'll be pleased to point you in the right direction of a moving company. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Excellent. So, you know, I was talking with Sublevoix and he brought your name up and he had so many great things to say about you. And, uh, you really came onto my radar at that point. I started watching your social media and you have been sharing some really cool stuff there. Stuff about your background, lessons learned, some positivity, uh, insights on things that you've seen and encountered that you can share with others. And that was one of the big things that really motivated me to want to meet with you. You are obviously very intelligent. You're thoughtful about what you put out. You're, uh, you're come across as very kind and compassionate and all under this exterior of a warrior, which is some, a really neat dichotomy. And, uh, I also understand that you are working on a book as well. And I thought maybe we could have an opportunity to talk a little bit about what that might be without spoiling the, uh, the plot and maybe delve into a few different areas there. Sure. Uh, well, thanks for saying that. I mean, that's a very, um, generous and, and thoughtful, um, opening sequence on, on certainly on me. <laughs> I'm not sure I deserve all that praise. Um, but, uh, in respect to Seb Lavoie, uh, yeah, he's the man. I love Seb. He's, he's an awesome dude. And, and, uh, everything that, uh, I'm doing right now is, uh, partially, um, because of Seb and his sound direction and his uh, leadership in respect to just trying to do things better on social media, be more positive, be a little more thoughtful as a leader, perhaps. And, and so I'm just trying to follow in his footsteps a little bit, I would say. That's, uh, that's pretty neat. You know, I'm watching the lives that uh, people are affecting around them, both positively and negatively. And we had a discussion prior to recording here about some of the negative things that people can do that affect other people's lives and the ripple effect that'll have when it comes to the positive things that people can impart. Uh, I'm looking at like, for example, right now, Seb is doing uh, mental health walks. I think they're once a week or once yeah, a- every Sunday or every second Sunday, but certainly on the Sundays for sure. 
Right. I haven't got out to one yet. I probably should. I'd really like to. I just, you know, got to find the time to do these things. But that was in, um, in response to some, something that was negative that had happened. I remember it was on Christmas. I was talking with him and like, how are you doing? He's like, not too good. I'm like, what's going on? Right. And he relays a story about somebody who's having a difficult time who, um, uh, really should be reaching out to others. And I uh, was having difficulties with mental health. Luckily, everything turned out well for this individual. But uh, shortly thereafter, Seb says, you know, I'm, I'm going to use social media. I'm going to reach out through that. And I'm going to use that to uh, have people, um, if, if they want to talk, if they can DM me, if they want to, if there's something I can share from my background that might be helpful, we'll use that. And that kind of morphed into you know, maybe we just meet in person. Maybe there's something that we can do. And I have a feeling that what he's doing and the commitment he's putting it in, the regularity of having these mental health walks is probably going to have a ripple effect where other people in other locations start doing the same thing. Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, one thing about Seb is he he's a true leader without a doubt. And he he's a bit of a visionary as well. And where this mental health walk goes ultimately is anyone's guess but even if it went nowhere it's already gone somewhere right and so i what i love about seb is um he got something in his mind and he started executing against it and and now the rest will take care of itself and not just in the small localized aspect of the left coast or vancouver area it's it's much larger than that as soon as he pulled the trigger it it was across Canada in in some way, right? And and you know um, we're both talking about it right now, so it's it's touched us in its own little way. And I, I of course I'm chatting with a number of guys on the regular, and it's touched them in a number of ways. And so ultimately, what it turns into is probably less important than what it's already done. I agree. I agree. And that was one of the areas that. You know, we're talking before, I'm looking at the different podcasts that I've done and some, I've had some phenomenal people on, but when you hit those keywords, uh, XSAS, XSBS, JTF2, you put these little keywords in, all of a sudden it opens up the, the podcast to, uh, the search algorithm for people who might be searching for it. And it opens up the, uh, the spectrum of people who might be listening to it. So uh, you're in the process of doing something very similar. You're sharing positivity, you're sharing your life experiences, you're talking about uh, difficulties and overcoming them, how you spent time coaching high-level athletes to uh, on both physical and mental conditioning. And uh, I think given your background, what you've been through not only helps lend credibility, but it helps lend exposure that um, it really helps get your message out there. Um, I would be interested in talking a little bit about your background and then kind of working that into what you're doing now and where you see yourself going. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> you know, the one thing that I will start off with saying is you're right. Um, my background does lend credibility and I'm hesitant to say that in fact, I was struggling to say it as I said it, and and it's because it's a relatively new realization for me. Mm. Uh, I've been told this a number of times 
that uh, my background lends credibility to some of the things that I say, but I, I, I struggle with that idea. Mm-hmm. But it's true. It does. And the, the titles that I carry, um, they do have a larger reach than I thought they would or should, but it is what it is. And so I'm not trying to duck any of those titles, but I'm trying also not to capitalize on them either. I'm just trying to be me. And as it turns out, some people are interested in that. And so that's a good thing. So I'm curious. Uh, I have my own uh, thoughts as to why it might be, but why the struggle about uh, leaning on the background in order to help propel the uh, the positivity to propel what you're doing right now? Mm, that's a great question. I, I think there's probably, no one's asked me that question, so thanks for that. <laughs> I, th- I think there's probably two reasons as I'm kind of real-time processing an answer for you. And the first one is easily understood, and that is, uh, if, if I'm speaking specifically about JTF2, when we were coming up in that system, it we were so under the radar that, um, you know, it was an entirely different beast of uh, keeping it quiet. Mm-hmm. And so anything that we did or have done, I've, I've kind of put it as part of my DNA to never discuss that or never use it in a way that is exploitative. Right. I, I would... I would never do that. Right. And so the system, in a sense, um, has developed the uh, reality for me that I just don't talk about it a lot, Mm. uh, if that makes sense. Oh, it totally does. And that that would be my gut reasoning why you would Mm -hmm. have some hesitation. Now, the second part um, is because my nature, I I struggle between... um, things that I've accomplished and talking about the things that I've accomplished because there's a line where, uh, depending on the audience that you're talking to or the more correctly, the person in front of me, some of the things that I've done in the past would seem um, a little crazy or a little um, almost unbelievable sure. uh, for, for lack of a better term, an, an average person mm-hmm. uh, who is not used to these kind of crazy things. And so I've, over the years, I've tried to tell a tale or two and, and oftentimes I'm the other person on the receiving end, their eyes are a bit buggy and they don't, they don't know, believe perhaps it. they don't believe it. Right. And so I've, I've just learned not to talk too much about some of the things that I've done or, or some of the uh, things that I've seen more mm. correctly. And, and perhaps uh, that is a part of me, a part of my DNA, I'm not sure. But to your point, I'm learning over the last little while through this social media process that I've got to find a better balance between telling a story without telling too much of the story, I suppose. Yeah, that's a, you know, some of the, there's some authors out there, I forget what Andy McNabb's real name was, but right. he, but he he was one of the first guys that came out to write an immediate action and brought Bravo 2-0 and a few other books. And man, that guy's a storyteller, right? That's right. Like, and he can, he can tell a, a spin a good yarn without giving away a bunch of stuff, but I think he came under a whole ton of heat as well during that process. And now it seems more normal, normalized for people who have gone through a special forces route to be able to talk about it afterwards, but it's still got that, um, 
I, I think there's got to be a social stigma associated with it as well. I think so. And, you know, I don't want to um, create a conversation around perhaps some of the teams that are out there versus the teams here in Canada. Mm. I, I, I'm going to try not to make that comparison, but to your specific point about uh, Bravo 2.0, um, I do recall, this may or may not have happened, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to say that. Sure. I do allegedly. recall, uh, allegedly, I do recall one of our guys uh, possibly heading over to the UK to possibly uh, deal or, or work with another organization in the UK and coming back with a Bravo 2.0 book signed by Andy. And uh, and he just put it right up in my face and said, check that out. And I was like, what? Because I really enjoyed the book when it came sure. out. It was one of the forerunners of that almost mystique um, story. And so, you know, these kind of early front-running books were phenomenal for, for what they did. They they kind of created a entirely new world for some people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in those early days, I think the pacing of uh, the release of information was a lot more appropriate than it is now. I can appreciate that. Now, talking about front runners and forerunners, you were a part of a team that essentially were the uh, where JTF2 started, if I'm not mistaken. You, were, you helped create what... Uh, JTF2 is now. Yeah, and and I'll I'd like to reframe that. Uh, I I didn't help create anything other than I was a part of something. So, right. um, yes, I the term I believe is plank holder, okay. and so that indicates someone who was there right from the onset, right from the beginning of the teams, and and I was very privileged, and and it was an honor, of course, to be part of that process, and. When it all started off, when JTF2 kicked off, it, it wasn't really... I didn't know it as JTF2 at the time. I'm not even sure it had a name at the time. Mm. When it all kicked off, we kind of didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. I do recall in uh, when I was in the regular military, there was a memorandum outside of my commanding officer's um, headquarter building and I looked at that memorandum uh, pinned on the wall and I generally read along the lines of we can't tell you what it you're going to be doing we can't tell you where you're going to be doing it and we can't tell you how hard it is going to be but if you're interested sign here and I was like I'm, <laughs> I'm all about that and you know probably stupidly and 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 very shallowly considering the uh, what I was getting myself into but I was all about that yeah. so that that just spoke directly to my soul and so I was all in and and in the early days we didn't know where we were going or what we were going to be doing or how long precisely Mm. and and I wouldn't now that I know uh, I wouldn't have changed a thing of course but at the time it was quite a leap of faith if you will yeah oh I can appreciate well how old were you I was, when I got badged into the team, I think I was about 29 years old. Okay. Okay. So, uh, you've been, at that point, you'd been with Canadian Armed Forces for, for some time. and Yeah, I was, I was relatively qualified uh, to put my name in the hat to maybe have a try at getting on the team. And I, th- I had some things working in my favor, for sure. 
Uh, I'd already faced a, a reasonable amount of adversity through a number of specialty qualification courses. Actually, this one being one of them, the Pathfinder course, is uh, known as a tough course. And so I was also sniper qualified, and, and being an Army sniper, there weren't too many of us at the time. Mm. And so that was of great interest, I suppose, to the formation of the team. And, you know... Not to get too far ahead of myself, you've kind of got to pass selection before you start building a team, as it were. So, sure. um, you know, I I wanted to be part of it, but I wasn't sure what I was going to be part of. And as it turns out, it it, it was being part of an amazing tier one uh, team for sure. So, uh, going through your Pathfinder training, what, what did that encompass? Yeah, that's. I think it's loosely referred to as one of the hardest courses in NATO, certainly mm. at the time. Uh, I'm not sure how it stands now. I'm sure it's still extremely difficult. Well, I'm sure. Certainly one of the hardest, if not the hardest course in Canada mm -hmm. uh, at the time. And so what it was, it was being run at the Canadian Airborne Regiment uh, in Petawawa. And the course lasted 70 days. And there were no days off. Every day was a course day where you were um, facing the fury of some very focused directing staff who were there to uh, ensure that you belong there. Mm. We had a very extremely high attrition rate. I, I'm not sure if I can kick out the percentage, but it was extremely low pass rate. It, the course was fairly brutal. Mm, just to give some general statistics, I would say... On average, over those 70 days, I was getting about three hours of sleep per night, or in a 24-hour cycle, we'll call it, because there was no day and night, per se. Okay. Uh, maybe about three hours in a 24-hour cycle. Some some cycles, you know, two or three days, you might get 10 minutes of sleep kind of thing. Wow. Uh, if you were getting longer sleeps than that, it was usually on a like a CC-130 Hercules, mm. as you were flying from one spot to another spot to jump out at that spot. So you might get some rack on the plane. Mm. Um, but even then, uh, the directing staff were there to ensure that you are working through your patrol planning and so on and so forth while you're on the bird. So not <laughs> a lot of sleep. And in respect to calories or food, um, generally speaking, we were working on approximately one IMP per day. And so normally that uh, a regular uh, infantry soldier, as an example, would be getting at least three IMPs right. per day. We were at one IMP per day. And, and that meant, so for lunch, I'd be looking forward to my pack of sugar. Yes. <laughs> there there well, wasn't there wasn't much uh, in the way of calories so you know just using those two simple statistics to give an indication of how hard the course was you were always uh lacking sleep and you were always lacking calories and the workload was unbelievable the pace was uh so hard mm. and the stressors the command stressors you were always in a role 
whether it was the patrol commander, the navigator, the signaler, the this, that, or whatever, you always had stressors placed on you, and you were always under a watchful eye, and the standards were extremely high. There was no room for error, and if you made a minor error, that was one strike, and you got three. And so you were, you, you were always facing heat. And so what does that mean for the human body? Well, when I started the course and finished the course, I lost nearly 25 pounds of muscle over the course of 70 days. Wow. Because you had to eat your body, essentially. Right. Uh, we were, you know, it would not be uncommon to spend a 24-hour cycle moving through uh, through the bush uh, with always, your, your rucksack was always over 100 pounds. And um, on top of that, you had your combat load, et cetera. So all in all, to make a long story short, it was an extremely difficult course that um, if you passed it, it was notable. And I think more, for me anyway, what was more important than... Uh, doing the course or passing the course was after the fact, year, two, seven years, to this day, I can still look at that course and think, man, there's not too many things that I am going to face that were harder than that. So it established a good baseline for me as I went towards JTF2, where I thought, man, this is really hard. But I think maybe I had a harder moment on the Pathfinder course or et cetera. That framework is fantastic. Yeah. So malnourished, uh, lacking sleep, 70 days. Did you think about giving up? Sure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the not never ever thinking about giving up in the sense of, I quit. I'm right. out of here. Right. I thought about giving up in the sense of, uh, you know, we were also extremely dehydrated. We were limited to water. And so, mm. listen, the, the program in 1987 was fairly diabolical. Right. And I would suggest that there is no way that program could run today <laughs> in a modern military. Just, just right. not. Because some of the things that were done uh, in respect to the limitations that were um, put on us uh, in food, water, sleep, mm. and so on and so forth, I don't think it would fly today. Right. And so there was a time when I was so um, dehydrated, I had no water left in my one canteen for that day, mm. uh, that I started formalizing or, or imagining what would I give up, what body part would I give up <laughs> just for maybe five minutes of sleep and, and maybe another sip of water. And that body part was, you know, a significant <laughs> body part. <laughs> so I Never, I was never interested in quitting, but I did have uh, several moments where I just thought, well, this is outrageous. Mm. What was it that would push you to drive through? Because if the attrition rate, rate was relatively low, if a lot of people were dropping out or being kicked out, uh, there's something in you that could see that finish line somehow and see yourself uh, completing it as not an impossible Herculean task. Hmm. What was it that drove you to continue? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I think I didn't know it at the time, 
but I know it better now, given that I've faced other more um, adverse um, scenarios as I moved on through my military career. At, at the time in my Pathfinder course, I'd faced adversity for sure and a number of other things, but the Pathfinder course was really the was a, a whole new level of adversity. And so what I was doing was two things. I was relying on my my natural stubbornness. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm just going to do it. Right. That's what that's what runs a lot of my life. I, I call it stubbornness. Some people call it grit. Some people call it other things. But I just think of it as being stubborn. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the other part was I didn't really know what the next day would bring. And so I compartmentalized my my 70 days. All I had in front of me was what was in front of me that day or that hour or that next five minutes. Mm. And I just simply had to stand up and do that thing. And then 10 minutes later, I'd be doing something else and whatever that something else was, I would do my best. And so compartmentalizing my way through the 70 days, you know, on day 33, you don't know what's going to happen on day 55. You, For me, I just would stubbornly keep doing my best. And, mm-hmm. and as it turns out, you know, I think it's probably an analogy for life. You can pathfinder your way through life by just facing some adversity and doing your best in the moment and not worrying too much about what tomorrow brings, focus on being your best right now and and tomorrow will take care of itself when it shows up. Yeah, that's great advice. And being able to compartmentalize these things, everything in its whole might be overwhelming. But right now, right here, I can take care of this. Next five minutes, I can do five minutes. That's right. And, you know, if, if on day one I could have understood the entire 70 days and and the fullness of it man i I don't know what i would say on day one as to whether i want to proceed to day two Mm. i i want to believe that i would say bring it Mm. uh i've i've got this bring it but it was a it was a full 70 days and and uh i think it's kind of helpful to not fully understand what you're going to be putting your body and your mind and your soul through uh, sometimes. Yeah. Well, was Pathfinder training a requisite to sniper training? No. No, it wasn't. Mm. Army sniper required a number of pre-certifications, but it didn't require Pathfinder. So they were really two different sort of pass, I would suggest, mm-hmm. as an infantryman or as an airborne soldier. Uh, one would be a Pathfinder, as an example, w- would be more focused on deeper reconnaissance, or we'll call it behind enemy lines, for lack of a better term. Uh, first in uh, sort of sorting out the drop zone or the landing zone or what have you, and setting up that and then setting up routes to the objective, getting eyes on the objective, looking for secondary and so on and so forth. Mm. A, a lot of moving parts and a lot of uh, sort of personal movement. And as a pathfinder, you would be an asset that is a force multiplier. So 
you'd be operating independently, generally speaking. Sometimes you'd be on a two-man team, but more often than not, there were so many things to do that you had to just bust a move as fast as you could and as, as tactically as you could to get as much done, and then you're on to the next thing, and mm. you're reporting to a much higher level. And so you're, as you're moving on the ground, you, you are, you're making a lot of... Uh, affecting a lot of change mm-hmm. whereas a sniper again you're an independent mover but your your responsibilities are more surveillance and and you can change the battlefield for sure mm-hmm. but uh, in a completely different way than a pathfinder would uh, they they have some similarities but they are two different paths for sure so you've had those under your belt you're looking for the next challenge this thing who knows what it is? This That's mysterious right. memo comes up, and you're like, "I'm all in." What did it look like after that? What What was the process of building with the team that you ended up being with? Mm, so, first of all, selection uh, was held out in the Ottawa region, and because the team was just it was the inception of the team, there wasn't any information out there at all about what selection was. Uh, you you know, d- did you need to be able to fly and hold your breath? <laughs> Who knew? Uh, I mean, no one knew. Right. And so you were really entering into the void. Uh, you stepped off into the unknown. And you operated in the unknown on a daily basis, actually on a per minute basis. Now, I I believe at this time, it's reasonably well known that selection has, is a reasonably set process that Mm. has a number of things that have to be accomplished, and it's quite a test, Mm -hmm. and and the, the men who pass or the men who don't pass, it's never for... It's never for reasons such as, uh, oh, you just couldn't do enough push-ups or, oh, you just were, you ran too slow. Right. It's far more than that. And and the question uh, that I'm sometimes asked is, uh, well, why did this guy not make it? Mm. And, and why did you? Bro, if I had that answer, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a process and mm. it's a scientific process. And... It uncovers enough about a person that they, the system as a whole feels comfortable in bumping them onto the next step, which okay. there are several steps, of course. So entering into selection, I didn't know what I was facing because no one knew what we were facing. It's a bit different now. Mm. So that process was fascinating to me. It was amazing. It was a beat down and and it was um, it was illuminating, I would say. Mm. Illuminating is a good word because as an individual, the spotlight was on you for mm. all of your flaws and all of your strengths. And it was illuminating to me as an individual, not just for the directing staff who were observing my mistakes. Um, it was it really kind of shone a spotlight within myself of, oh my goodness, I can't believe I just did that. Is that even me? Why did I do that? Or as the stressors build and as Mm. the sleep uh, deprivation built and so on and so forth. 
and because you're exposed to so many things, all of your fears, all of your weaknesses, as when you're in those moments, um, if if you are operating at a high enough level, you can get a pretty good sense of a version of who you are in a way that you've never seen before. Sleep and lack thereof can mm-hmm. do some very funny things to people. What did you learn about yourself through that process? Um, hmm. So many things. Yeah. I think that I, I would wish for every soldier in the Canadian Armed Forces to be exposed to a process like that, a selection of some form. I think it would make every soldier a better soldier, mm. but more importantly, it would make every soldier a better human. Because if, if you, as humans, we all have ego. Sure. And sometimes our ego is a bit inflated or artificial or incorrectly calibrated as to our ability to execute against that ego that we think we are. Mm-hmm. And so the selection process is, is strips away all of the facade of what you think you can do and helps you understand a lot better what you are capable of as a person, as a human being, not as a shooter, Mm. Not as a mover, mm. not as a thinker, mm. but the, what you do in the moment when uh, times are tough. Right. When the chips are down, what are you made of? That's right. What, not only what are you made of, but um, the kind of higher level processing that is required in tier one whether you are capable of of stepping out of the chaos that is occurring not only internally but in the immediate bubble all around you mm. stepping out of that chaos and processing at a higher level so that you are more strategic rather than just simply tactical mm. or emotional or and and i can see a selection process being put in place to really help weed out those who might be uh mentally not at the same level as as others might be to be able to deal with those stresses i don't know if that was as big of a um consideration i'm sure it was a consideration but i don't know if it was as big of a consideration in the early days of special force units um I would think that nowadays that that plays a, a huge role is making sure that the person's mindset is such that they're going to be able to be useful in a long-term sort of way. Yeah, I, I think uh, you raise an excellent point there. And, and in the early days or the inception of JTF2, I'm sure there was a, a wizard behind the curtain <laughs> who knew what was going on, but it certainly wasn't me. Right. And and as a uh, operator, uh, as an assaulter, and then a sniper, and then moving on to team leader, and so on and so forth, within all of the roles that I uh, played, I think there was so much going on that you were busy enough just doing what you had to do. I, I never felt that I was so capable of doing it all so well that I could step out of that 
control and observe things at such a strategic level mm. that I could start considering who's the wizard mm. and, and what does the wizard know that I don't know? How is all of this, all of these moving parts, how, how is it all working as well as it works or where are we going next in the sense of as a unit? So back then, I'm not sure if that existed. Perhaps it did. I just didn't see it. But I think now, um, on two points, I do honestly believe that um, the, the unit is an amazing organization and that all of the early road bumps have all been ironed out. Mm. And I also think that comparing myself as an operator or the operators that uh, started off in the unit, I would argue that an operator today is possibly twice as good as what I was at the time. And, and I think that that's quite a quite a, a big thought because back then I thought we were pretty good. <laughs> yes. I really did. I mean, we were, we were the cream of the crop as it were within the army. We were the first uh, skimming of the cream and, and they pushed us as hard as they could and turned us into what they turned us into. And I thought we were real good at what we did. But nowadays I think that the processes that are in place not rudimentary as we were back then, a very sophisticated and nuanced process that is wrapped around those operators. I think that they are far better trained, far better educated. I think that they're just better uh, qualified humans uh, as they step onto that start line, never mind once they cross the finish line. That's, what was it, Newton who said, the reason I can see where I can see now is because I stand on the shoulder of giants. That's right. So I would really hope that as time goes on that people are learning from those mistakes and building back better. But you're also going to find a different type of person, I would think, that, that comes in. Maybe um, I look at, uh, so my father was on the first ERT for Vancouver and helped set them up. And I, and I look at um, the... Uh, the training programs that they put into place that would never fly now and the things that they would do, which would be maybe viewed as safety third as opposed to safety first, right? Right. And um, mind you, when I can hear some of the old timers complain and they say, well, people need a special course and certification just to breach a door, whereas we just do it, right? Well, maybe there's a reason why, maybe. I think so. Right. <laughs> um, the... Uh, the type of um, person that would get into it then might be a little bit different than the type of person who would get into that sort of a thing now. Operationally, I'd have to agree with you. I mean, just constantly getting better and better. I'm wondering, as we get new technology and resources, uh, does that change a, uh, a unit much or would the just a fundamental grit uh, mental attitude, uh, ingenuity um, that the forefathers had in putting things forward to sort of trump any sort of um, uh, technologies or new kit that could come into place? That's a great question. And I've given it a little bit of thought. And, and funnily enough, it's a relatively recent consideration for me. I would say over the last year, mm. I've given it a much deeper consideration. First of all, I would like to establish that 
whether it's whether I'm carrying a space laser or a spear at a baseline level if you're an elite uh, warrior we'll say or mm-hmm. elite operator you've you your baseline has to be good to go you you've got to be pretty squared away or you've got to have a bunch of for lack of a better term I'll call them special qualities in order to to operate at a, an elite level mm. now whether it's a spear or a space laser um, I think those are uh, layers that are added on to that baseline. Mm. And so I'm going to use a personal um, example, or I'll use myself as a case study for lack of a better term. When we were coming up on the teams, the weapons that we had, we didn't have lasers mounted to them. Uh, it was it was a big deal to get a uh, surefire or get mm. a, a, a flashlight on on your uh, on your weapon. And so, we I, I was taught to shoot, and, and I was already a real good shot. I think before I went to the teams, but certainly after I went through the process, I was as we all were. Mm. I'm not singling myself out. We were all mm, extremely extremely qualified to do the job and Mm -hmm. so we were all good shots but we're all good shots off iron sights and so the um the the four point nvgs or night vision Mm -hmm. goggles with lasers and this and that i mean those are excellent tools but strip those tools away and at a baseline level an elite operator is still an elite operator and they can do the job with a slingshot Mm. or with a space laser Mm. now comparing my era to the modern era of tier one i would say that they have a number of tools tools that i wouldn't even be aware of i would uh, Mm. suggest but all of those tools are simply there to mm, facilitate the task at hand they are there to move the needle in a in a way that we couldn't have done in the 90s but at the end of the day the job would still get done it would just be done um in its own unique way but it's always going to get done interesting what was the rest of the makeup of your team like because i would have to say as i go through my head here Every single person that I know who I'm either spoken with or friends with or interacted with who is, uh, would be considered a high level in, in their position, whether that be, um, uh, police or military, um, tend to be kind, compassionate, um, softer spoken, not the typical hoorah type of a, um, individual gung-ho, uh, sort of attitude that Hollywood would have you believe these people are is, are you, am I just attracted to those kind of people who seem to have their ego so squarely in check? Or is it the fact that these people who are able to, um, comport themselves in such a way tend to make for better, uh, high level operatives? Mm, I think, I think as you move down the path towards special operations or as you uh, pursue that more elite level of operation, the reality is you face a lot of beatdowns. The amount of adversity that you are subjected to or you must subject yourself to in order to move to that next level is abnormal. Mm. And so in all of that adversity, if you show up with a big ego, it's going to get crushed. 
Mm. I mean, you there is just no way around it. You cannot retain a massive ego and just bumble you way forward to tier one. Mm. You you get it crushed out of you because you have to face all of your flaws. You have to face all of your mistakes. Uh, there's a, a good friend of mine, Tim Turner. What's up, Tim? And um, he's a he's a army sniper as well. And um, we've had a couple of laughs. In fact, while we're out at Operation Pegasus Jump on Vancouver Island this summer, Tim and I were talking, and and we're both in full agreement that the army sniper course, which I did before JTF two was even a twinkle in anyone's eye. That course is so difficult on many levels, but one of the things that stands out in the sense of difficulty is the amount of failure that you have to face. Mm. I'd never faced that amount of failure before. It was so regular to fail in various aspects of that course that it, it, it was the course that started normalizing failure for me. Interesting. And up to that point, I hadn't really faced that level of failure before. I things I don't want to say things came naturally to me because that would be a, a, a misstatement. Mm-hmm. But I I always did really 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 well in everything that I did up until the sniper course where I was failing and it was shaking me a little bit. Mm-hmm. But through that process of so much failure then normalizes failure. And then I became comfortable enough with failure that I started after the sniper course to begin pursuing failure. And now my, my, my regular pattern and has been for decades now is to pursue failure. Interesting. So I I guess from a training perspective, you got to be really careful. Like you can train people up just to be rabid dogs who will bite anything that moves to be so beaten that they're timid and cowering in the corners. If failure is such a normalized thing, um, there's got to be a very tricky psychological balance here between making a winner out of somebody who's constantly being beaten down and failing. Um, And now that you actively seek out failure, I should only imagine it so that you can find your weak points and work at that. Yeah, that's it. Precisely. And the, as I'm speaking to you about it right now in real time, I'm, I'm, you know, considering the subject in real time and I'm trying to give you my real time Mm -hmm. answer and and you're making me think about things in, in unique ways. So you'll have to bear with me if it's not a very clean (laughs) message, but I would say this, that it, we weren't taught how to move through that process. So on, on the sniper course, as an example, all of those failures, it's on you. Mm. And you had to figure out a way. And there was no manual. There was no self-help book. There was no mentor to kind of pat you on the shoulder and give you a hug and say, <laughs> I know you're struggling, but don't worry about it because a few years from now, it's going to be really beneficial. Mm. And so you just had to, back then, and I'm not, I, I don't know what it is like now, but back then you had to figure it out and you had to carve a way forward that you could continue to be successful for lack of a better term in on the path. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure if that was a good way to learn uh, or, or there's better ways to learn, but it was the way at the time. 
I think it takes a special person to be able to learn from that because of, I think there's a lot of people out there that'll get beaten down and never get back up and mm-hmm. they'll carry that with them. And what's that Latin saying? Luxi tenebris, right? Light from darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, the person who can see that light from the darkness, like a friend of mine, he says, you know, uh, same fellow who says he grades his mental health based on how he climbs. If he's uh, unable to do harder pitches, he knows he's got to step back a little bit and uh, do a few easier pitches. And it's because his head's not firing in the way that he kind of wants it to. He says um, when it's stormy out and it's just miserable and he's out in the alpine and alpine touring on his skis, uh, he knows that he'll bunker down to build a little snow shelter and the next day is probably going to be some of the best skiing that he's ever seen. It's going to be a bluebird day, right? But having the ability to see that or at least somehow visualize that success in your mind or what it's going to be like is going to be better. I think a lot of people have difficulty with, um, what advice would you give someone else or what advice would you give your younger self with your accrued knowledge over the years in being able to deal with adversity or deal with failure? Mm, That's a great question. Certainly one thing, and I'm going to use the sniper course as an example to make my point. One thing is you have to figure out how to be the best version of yourself in the moment Mm. all the time, irrespective of the challenge in front of you. So whether you're making your coffee in the morning or whether you're facing the hardest hardship you've ever faced, figure out how to do your best in real time. And so even when things are going completely sideways, as long as I'm doing my best, even in the full sideways moment, I know that 10 years from now, I won't have any regret as to what I was doing as things are going sideways. Where I have my most regrets is when I'm being a bit lazy, when I'm not doing my best. Mm. So if it's going sideways and I'm kind of half-assing it a little bit, Mm. I know that 10 years from now, I'm going to look back and I'm going to think, man, that was lazy. Or man, I could have done better. Or man, I shoulda, woulda, coulda. I never think that if I'm doing my best in the moment. Because mm. if I'm doing my best, I'm, I'm literally doing my best and, and it's based on all of the extenuating circumstances around me. It's based on all of the variables that I'm taking in and it's based on all of my experiential solutions that I'm putting into play in that moment. As long as I'm doing my best, I'm good to go. It doesn't mean that it'll be a successful outcome. Mm. It just means that I won't have any regrets in the future. How do you stop yourself when you start going down a path, maybe invasive thoughts are coming in, you're feeling like you're tired, you're hungry, you're angry, something's going on. I'm, I'm sure, you know, even just going in traffic, some people are subjected to road rage or, or different life difficulties. When Do you ever find yourself in a situation where you have to just stop yourself and say, hold on a second, am I doing my best? Am I trying my best? Am I making the best decisions? Am I thinking about this in a way where I'll be proud later on to look back? Do you ever find yourself in a situation where that becomes clouded or is it always? I do. Okay. And and perhaps on a regular basis, Mm. certainly more frequently than I would like. Mm. And, (laughs) and, uh, but I think that's part of being human. Right. 
I, I'm not a robot. I've been accused of being a cyborg from time to time, but I am not, Seb. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's part of the human condition. Um, we, are, we all have flaws. We all make mistakes. And we don't always do things right. And, and I would argue that I, I do a, a poorer job of it than uh, other people that I know. Mm. But uh, as long as I as hang on to the fact that if I'm doing my best then that's my best. And it, using your example of, of traffic, like sometimes in traffic, I'm, I'm done with traffic. Mm-hmm. I'm over it. And I'm pretty frustrated with the people who don't know how to drive or the people who are cutting in on a mm-hmm. line or the people who are doing this, that, and the other thing. The people. Mm-hmm. And it, if I've got to do something as simple as enter into a bit of box breathing, mm. now it's in my control. I've got things that I can do to reel back the frustration of them not being able to drive. And so if, if I kind of let it un, unspool in front of me and not take any measures to control the things that I can control, such as my box breathing or mm-hmm. my own emotional uh, moment, that's on me. And so it, it really comes down to, am I doing my best or not? And as long as I'm doing my best, I can still be frustrated. Mm. But I should be more frustrated with myself if I'm not doing anything to offset that frustration. And if, I, if I'm frustrated and I'm doing my best and I'm doing everything that I can to be my best now, there may still be some frustrations involved. But if I can't change those, then I just move through it. Mm. So I know what box breathing is, but some of the listeners might not. Hmm. Do you want to explain it? Sure thing. So if you think of your breath as a box, so breathe in, uh, breathe in for four seconds, hold it for four seconds, breathe out for four seconds, hold it for four seconds, breathe in, hold, breathe out, hold. Now I say four seconds, it could be five seconds, it could be two seconds, it could be eight seconds, whatever you're most comfortable with in the moment based on either your uh, experience of practicing that or how you feel in that moment. And if you can't box breathe, then you can switch to a a, a more, I call it almost like a two-dimensional breathing where you breathe in uh, for four seconds and then you let it out for four seconds. I think it's far less about the uh, protocol or the specifics of a timing of breathing, and it's more about switching into a more present sense. So you are actively focusing on controlling yourself in the moment through the simple observation of, I'm switching to breathing now. Mm -hmm. It's just flicking a switch on a protocol of you owning your real-time moment. Are there other things that you do to be present? I know some people, they'll say, I'll just concentrate on the color, right? And I'll look at that color and I'll notice how it fits in or doesn't fit in or just uh, a noise. That's something I would do quite a bit. Um, And I do with my children. They're angry, they're upset, there's something going on, typical emotions that people have as they're growing up. And I'm talking to them and I say, did you hear the plane outside? Well, no. Listen, can you hear the cars? Well, I do now. How about the fridge? Can you hear the fridge running, right? And that process of just stopping and listening can really, and I'll do it myself. I'll, I'll use listening as one of the things to be able to help uh, be present. 
Are there other things that you do? Yeah, though, and that's good advice to your children and to yourself. And and it's I think it's good advice for anyone. What I do do when I'm feeling the moment when when things are getting a bit uh, sideways or a bit chaotic or a bit much, we'll call it, mm-hmm. I try to expand my 360-degree sphere uh, to a point where it'll sound a little kooky, but I'll try to expand my awareness of not just what's all around me, but in the room over there. I'll try to feel the room that I can't see into, but I will try to feel a much larger footprint around me than a footprint I can hear or see or touch. And so if, if I'm being honest and, and, I, and if I'm really, really feeling a moment, I'll try to sense my backyard mm-hmm. or the tree line over there, which arguably is impossible. Or is it? I suppose it all depends on how much you've done it in your life and, right. and how much you've really expanded your awareness of what you're capable of or, or literally expanded your footprint. See, I like, I like that explanation. I'll do something similar. Let's say I'm really angry um, and you're feeling and you're in the moment. I'll try and say, how does that manifest itself physically within me, right? Does my stomach feel like it's tied up? Does my throat feel tied up? Am I, are my muscles clenched, right? Or what, what am I feeling? And I'll find a center line to what I'm feeling and I'll try and concentrate on that. And then I'll look at the edges, meaning I'll start going out. Like are the sides of my body feeling that outside my body? Like how big is it around me? Is this, is this feeling? And then I won't try and change it. I'll just try to non-judgmentally explore it and take a look at maybe the edges, the edges where I don't feel that. It sounds perhaps like a similar sort of thing, trying to feel in the other rooms where, where you're at. And I find if I try to change it, I'm not helping myself. Right. If I explore it non-judgmentally, like interesting. Right. Like maybe in a cyborg robotic way, right? Uh, but you try and strip that emotion out of it and explore the, uh, the perimeter of the edges. The natural by- byproduct of that is you become a little bit more centered. I think so. And, you know, I don't want to categorize that as something that is is a tool that is only used when you're feeling the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's something that you can do constantly. And let me give you a good example, perhaps, when I was coaching high-performance um, ultra-endurance athletes, 24-hour solo mountain bike racers. 24 hours of, of mountain bike racing and, you know, no sleep, no stop. It's, it's constant. You're mm-hmm. racing for 24 hours. Uh, you you take food as you're racing, um, etc. So one of the things that I would have my athletes do, because it's something that I would do, is we had to, I would ask them to run an internal diagnostic and an external diagnostic as they were on the bike racing, 18 hours into it. What's your internal diagnostic? And that means you've got to run a, a routine within yourself so that you can... Um, check in with your emotional state. Uh, Why are you racing in that moment? Do you understand your why still clearly? Mm. Or have you deviated from your why? Are you now in a race within a race? So the race within a race being that guy up on the horizon 
who kind of flipped you off as he went by. Are you now <laughs> racing him? He, he's, he's so unimportant in respect to a 24-hour racing event that you cannot afford to get emotionally distracted by someone who flipped you the bird as they sped by. By the way, they're on a team, so they're only doing one lap, so they're fresh as a daisy. Uh But now you're wanting to chase that guy down because he gave you some attitude. Mm. So internally, you've always got to be running that diagnostic. And externally, you've also got to run that routine so that how are my hands? Am I gripping my bar too tight? What's my water status? What's my X, Y, and Z? So as you're moving your energy system around internally and externally, it has to be a practice. It has to be a process that after a period of time becomes normal or natural or a subroutine that you don't have to keep triggering every mm. one minute or every five minutes. You have to be present with yourself, not just as you sit at a table as we are right now, but as you're executing hard tasks that should be so distracting that you can't do an internal and external diagnostic. But at what point do you start becoming better at running an internal and external diagnostic in moments where things are tough? Right. You've got to start somewhere. Right. So start today. Start yesterday working on an internal and an external diagnostic to better understand who you are in the moment right now and in those moments when things get tougher, of course. Yeah, now or never was the time. And now it's, or never. <laughs> <laughs> and it was never too late to stop and regroup. And that was a piece of advice that someone gave me a long time ago. And I thought that was a good one. Doesn't matter how far down you are on a path, it's not too late to stop, regroup, and make a different path for yourself. Yeah, and you know, I think uh, that's an interesting uh, observation because, it, you know, that's one way of framing it, but how about this way? Um, it's not that you're at a, a, a branching point junction where, oh, I've got to go left or I've got to go right. The path is the path. Mm. And the path is a straight line. In, in, in an academic sense, you're, you're on a straight line. It's just that life tends to weave and wend and up and down and, and sometimes a little backwards. But the path is, is linear. It's you progressing. Mm. But as we see it, we're at all of these branching points and, oh, I've got to make this hard decision and, oh, no, what do I do now? <laughs> but really, you're always moving forward as long as your, 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 your mindset is, I'm pursuing forward momentum always. We were talking a little bit about um, sort of road rage. And I remember reading a study once about... Uh, the correlation between the size of the place you live in, your city, your town, and the prevalence of road rage. And they said, once, if you live in a small town, somebody cuts you off, you're like, oh, that's Edith. She's probably drunk again or whatever, right? If somebody's right, out there. That's right. You can, you can humanize that other person and the response is different. You get pass that into a much larger place and all of a sudden it's just a bunch of faceless people and you're not looking at the individual, you're looking at the action of what happened and quite often people are looking at it like the person's doing it against them. So I'm looking at that analogy and I'm thinking of somebody who's coming from a tier one background. Outside of that, um, you, when you're in there and one of your mates does something silly and you're like, oh, that's, that's just them, right? And you can accept them for what they are. You come out of 
the army, you come out of your group that you're in and you're out into the big wide world, do you find it difficult to, or did you find it difficult to, um, uh, make those human connections? Yeah. <laughs> 101%. All right. <laughs> like I figured you would, but I figured yeah. I'd frame it that way. Just I found it, I don't want to say unimaginably difficult, but I found it extremely difficult. When I left uh, JTF2, um, you know, I was wearing my black uh, outfit and high-speed low-drag uh, I was a warrant officer, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of a big deal, I suppose, in the grand scheme of things. But then that evening, I was standing at the Ontario Police College as a civilian, signing in as a use of force instructor to do that thing. And, and man, nobody knew what, I, what I'd done or what I'd been up to or, or knew anything about me. And, mm. and so I kind of felt like I went from a million miles an hour to about three miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And and then a year later, uh, after I left the Ontario Police College, and now I was fully, a, we'll call it a veteran or a civilian or basically a nameless, faceless person myself <laughs> wandering down the, the sidewalk. Man, nobody knew uh, anything about me or what I was about. And, and that was kind of a strange time for me. It was a bit of a disconnect because... Um, I felt like I had uh, a lot of skills. I felt like I had a lot of this, that, or the other thing, but uh, I couldn't talk to anybody about it. Of mm-hmm. course, it's not like I could lean over and say, Psst, uh, so this is what I used to do. Do you got any <laughs> pro tips? Uh, so, so it was an unusual time for me, for sure. Um, and, and I think... And I, I, I might not have done a, an amazing job of working through that process. I just did my best mm. without any guidance or without any self-help books or mm. without a, what do you do when you get out of tier one from a secret organization that uh, <laughs> formerly doesn't exist kind of thing. You know, there, right. there, there was just no pro tip. So I just kind of did my best as I mm, focused on forward momentum. But um, over the years, and more correctly, over the decades, and it's only been fairly recently that I've come to the realization of the point that I'm going to make now, and it, and it goes back to what I just wrote down there, and that's the sniper course. So you'd asked me uh, a little earlier about kind of what did I do or how, how would you work through that or we're talking about failure and, mm. and, and et cetera. So... There's a number of things that I would do when times got tough or when I had to move through that failure rate or how to continue being, we'll call it successful. Um, But one of the things that I didn't mention that is so important and perhaps I didn't understand it at the time as well as I do now, and that is, man, the guys around me. So the other snipers on the sniper course who were also facing all of those failures, who were also proceeding ahead mm. and were there on my left and right. And, and though we're all facing the same struggles, we were all moving together as a team. And even as guys failed on the course, because they're extremely, extremely tough shooting standards, even as guys dropped out, um, we were all learning together and evolving as a as a organism towards mm-hmm. success. And so when I left the teams or when I left the military, 
Uh, I didn't have that same organism mentality where like-minded people were focused on excellence and were mm. hard-charging ahead with a, a mission purpose. That wasn't as common in the civilian workplace as I uh, did a, a handful of careers. But now, today as I sit here and over the last little while, I've been able to reflect back on all of that and realize that even today as I'm answering this question, um, I'm, I'm partly reflecting on the good men and women before me that I worked with who, uh, in this conversation I'm representing, that they found ways to be excellent and they are still excellent human beings doing mm. excellent things. And um, it was because of the men to my left and right that I tried to do my best. I'd have done my best anyway. Right. But them being next to me was a higher responsibility for me to really pull up my socks and, and pull that load, not just for them, but for the bigger team around me, that even the team that I didn't see at the time. I just wanted to bear the extra weight on behalf of those around me. And it draws the best out of you. Isn't that interesting how human nature is such that the, um, not the fear, but the, uh, the disinclination to let other people down uh, exceeds our own. Mm-hmm. We might be prepared to let ourselves down. Like, am I going to go to the gym today or am I going to work out today? Nah, but you got to meet your buddy. Well, I don't want to let them down. They're waiting for me to come. Okay, I guess I'm going to get out of bed and go to the gym. We're going to go whatever it might be that's difficult. Isn't that interesting? It is, but I, I don't think it's a universal um, phenomenon. I don't think it's every human okay. feels that way. I think that every human can feel that way. It, I believe it comes down to whether they've been exposed to what it means to be in a high-performance team. Mm. Now, let's pretend for a moment as a thought experiment that uh, you know, a high school student comes up through high school and they don't play any team sports at all. Mm. And uh, when they leave high school, they don't get any hobbies. They don't join any other teams. They're not in a bowling league or sure. whatever. Uh, they just simply don't operate in that space. And so now, who, who, what is their higher calling? They've only got themselves. So, so how do they interact uh, to better understand that you should perform at a higher level for those around you to support the, the larger team around you? Well, if you weren't raised in it, then how do you understand that? I, I don't think you can. Mm. You, you certainly can't learn it through watching Netflix. And so uh, for me, I was lucky coming up through the system, through the through my career path that not only uh, was I uh, taught it uh, directly through osmosis, you understood precisely why you were there. It wasn't about you. It was about the team. Mm. And so, and I'm not just talking about JTF2, the team. I'm talking about every subunit that I was involved in, every small team that I, uh, I was a part of. You were there for the team, not for yourself. And so I felt it always, all of us raised all of our boats simply by the fact that we were looking at all the boats around us trying to stay (laughs) up with the other boats and do our part to ensure that those boats, and it was a constantly raising 
situation as a small team. But you, you, you can't do your best if you've only ever been an individual. I agree. I agree. There's only, there's a limit to where you can go when you're only looking out after yourself. And I, I think I've talked about this before with others. It's, um, you know, everyone says, well, you got to work on you first, right? I'm, I'm getting my me time in, right? Or whatever it might be. I think to a degree, maybe that's good, but you don't, I think when you're of service to others or you put yourself in a position where you do have a higher calling or something else, you're not only uh, representing yourself better, but you're helping others. Um, people who are having difficulty with, uh, mental health, let's say, and they're like, well, I got to got some me time and I got to work on me. Well, I find quite often that those individuals will get so wrapped up into themselves that they can't see anything else outside. And the second they start working outside of themselves is when they start coming together. Yeah. And, and you know, I'll use, as I like to say, I'll use myself as a good, bad example. <laughs> um, I can use myself as an example in, in this instance and suggest that, um, you know, there was a time in my life and, and not too long ago where I was a little more focused on me hmm. rather than focused on the world around me. And, and that was because I was struggling with PTSD. Mm. Um, and, and I didn't know I had PTSD. In fact, when I left the teams, PTSD wasn't a word. And so when I transitioned out of the uh, GTF2, uh, my paperwork existed uh, on the back of a matchbook kind of thing. I didn't do anything. I didn't see anything, never saw a counselor, never saw anything, never did anything. Mm. And so basically, as I sit in this seat right now, I, I've kind of bumbled my way forward, uh, if you will. So PTSD was an unknown thing to me. But when I got formally diagnosed with it not too long ago, the great thing about that, for me anyway, was say what? It's got a word and it's called PTSD. <laughs> awesome. Now I can sink my teeth into that. Now I know what I can execute against. And as is my way, uh, I started voraciously researching a path forward so that I could do my best. And uh, speaking with people, as I try to do, who are wiser than me, which isn't hard to find. <laughs> um, and so I, I really decided to um, learn more about mental health. And through that process of learning more about mental health, I bumped into characters like the Sablevois, mm. and that that exploring a larger world around me helped me understand uh, a number of things. The first one would be that I'm not unique, nor are you, nor is anyone that we know. Mm. There is so much commonality from person to person in respect to uh, mental health struggles, mental mm -hmm. health challenges. And uh, it doesn't matter what uniform you wear or not. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter whether you uh, never leave your basement or not. Mm. None of those things matter. The reality is the commonality within the human condition is mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. And so what to do about that? Well, as you've already stated, the tendency is when you're focused just purely on yourself, 
you can kind of get lost in the white noise, the minutia of, I don't want to say woe is me, mm -hmm. but you can really focus on the negative aspects of, of life. And, and sure, you know, I'm, uh, there's probably a pile of people out there that can focus just on themselves and keep it all positive and, and, and s rainbows and, and unicorns sure. and, and so on and so forth. But I haven't met a whole lot of those. I would suggest that a better way to do things is to try to be of service to something larger than yourself. And trying to help others is how I started my career, being of service to others through the military. And uh, that kind of became part of my DNA. And, and through the other careers that I've done, they've all been in step with that, trying to be of service to others. And, and it's what I'm doing today. I'm just trying to be of service to others. And well, what does that mean? It, it means um, seeing a world larger than just myself. Mm. And so one of the things that uh, I've found, not just for me, but for a lot of people that I talk to, they make massive improvements in their life once they realize that they are surrounded by other people that they can interact with and become more awesome for it. You said that you didn't realize that you had PTSD. I think that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I think that's interesting because I don't think you're alone in that sort of an area. I think there's a lot of people out there that might have suffered from uh, one level of mental health or another. And we're all going to be at different points on the, on the scale here. Uh, but for people to understand what it looked like in somebody else might help them say, hold on a second, I'm seeing the same things or I'm having the same issues. Uh, I think the more that people are able to normalize and talk about these things, the more benefit it is for everybody. And when you talk about the human condition and the commonality in between, you're right. I've talked to people who've been diagnosed with PTSD who don't come from a background of, of uh, serving in police or military or fire or what have you, but based on their life experiences and their upbringing and their own human condition, they've, they've reached this diagnosis. What, what did it look like in you? What, how did you come to realize that you were uh, dealing with PTSD? It's mm, a great question. And, you know, I think... First of all, I should establish that my path would be unique from everyone else's path, and mm. we're also unique in our path. But to bring it into more of a common terminology or common framework, I, I suspect that we all, as humans, struggle from time to time. And so it would be a case of for how long and how deep mm. uh, as a person struggling. And so for myself... I didn't, again, I didn't know the term PTSD mm. and it's, it's kind of a funny, not funny, but kind of funny story. <laughs> um, so my sister-in-law, Irene, uh, came to Roslyn here and, and was staying with us and, and I came downstairs one morning after, you know, getting up at whatever time. And as I came down the stairs, she said, good morning, how are you? I said, uh, good, how are you? And she said, how'd you sleep? I said, ah, you know, so-so. Mm. What do you mean? And we kind of entered into that conversation of, so why didn't you sleep well? And and I hit her with the classic, ah, just a bit of a nightmare. Oh, mm. yeah? Uh, what kind of a nightmare? Ah, no big deal. 
Um, well, you know, how often do you have nightmares every night? Mm. Uh, well, how long? Mm, for the last couple of decades. Right. Every night you've had nightmares and chirp, chirp, chirp. And mm. so over the course of a five-minute long conversation, uh, my sister-in-law, basically, I'm sure she was set up by my wife. <laughs> Here it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a good thing. Sure, totally is. It's a good thing. And, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, but through that conversation, I thought to myself, yeah, I suppose I've just been getting on with getting on and I found a way to uh, work with it or or um, still be a functioning member of society, still doing good things, still executing to the best of my ability and etc. I've done pretty well, but I got to step out of myself for a second and realize if I can strip out some of these limitations, such mm. as not having nightmares every freaking night and not having my deep and REM sleep cycles constantly compromised and, mm. and et cetera, et cetera. Um, if I can work on that, then where would that take me? And what I had effectively done is I'd normalized my my nightmares uh, to such a degree that they just become a part of me. Right. And 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 it's not that I'd lost perspective on how I could do things better. Perhaps I just I I didn't maybe I didn't want to face mm. the fact that I was struggling to some degree because mm. I I was I'm used to winning. Right, of course. Not losing. Right. <laughs> And I chase failure, but I don't want to fail. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. So the dichotomy of trying to live my best life and and while maybe not wanting to face some of the things that would be down and dirty and gritty, which is which is uh, almost hypocritical since I've based a large chunk of my life on pursuing adversity or mm -hmm. grittiness. But I maybe I just didn't want to deal with uh, for. It's a terrible term, but I'm going to spit it out there because it'll make the point. I didn't want to deal with my own weaknesses, mm. but it wasn't weaknesses. It was just the life that I was living in the moment because I hadn't processed some of the things that I needed to process in order to become more awesome. Mm -hmm. And you know what more awesome means? Getting freaking good sleep every night, totally. which I do now. And so when, when she, it's not that she challenged me, but when she brought up the subject of Sean, you know that that's not normal. Mm. Um, well, I mentioned it to my family doctor who I would see like once a year and she said, what? And so we went into a conversation that turned into then about 10 hours worth of conversations back and forth over a number of sessions where my awesome family doctor uh, said, hey, you know, we should take a look at this. We should maybe get it formally diagnosed. And mm. and then I was into um, uh, BCOSI, if you know anything about them, um, and uh, spoke with a um, psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. Uh, over the phone uh, on a because this was during the pandemic at the start of the pandemic and right. so during that uh, a virtual conversation with her uh, over a number of sessions she said hey look uh, straight up PTSD mm. and I was like whoa so that's what it is cool 
And then my life got better. Really? Like yeah. In what way? Well, because as soon as I had a label, for lack of a better term, then I could learn more about it. And once I started learning, I started figuring out ways to do it better. And speaking with my family doctor, and, and I'm not a guy who's ever done meds. Mm. Uh, I don't, I'm not into opioids or anything like right. that. In fact, if I get banged up, I don't even like taking a Motrin or an aspirin. Mm. I just like to, I like to do it naturally. I don't, I don't I've never done steroids. I like to yeah. do, I like to own my own path. I agree. And so, um, she recommended uh, a medication to me. I was like, forget it, Andrea. I'm not a medication guy. I'll right. never do that stuff. And over the course of uh, um, a couple of uh, back and forth, she said, it's called prazosin. It is as common as aspirin. It's simply for high blood pressure. But one of her, uh, one of her friends, an associate, who'd done a uh, study on combat veterans and combat nightmares, had suggested that there could be some positive outcome from uh, this drug called prazosin mm. and how it might strip out some of the nightmare aspect. And I was like, okay. Uh, and I bit down on my mouthpiece and I said, I'll give it a try. Okay. And that's the first med that I'd ever taken. And that's the only med that I take yeah. um, from um, big pharmaceutical. And here's the thing. Man, I, it, it's Sean. Hey, young Sean, you're such a jackass. Um, <laughs> here's the thing. that The first night, bam, gone. Really? That like, quick? Like that. And, and, and I've never really had a nightmare since. Uh, maybe one or two. That's it over the course of some time now. And listen, if I had a, a time machine that I could punch back two decades mm. and start taking Prazosin, guess what I'd be taking? Really? Prazosin. And so, you know, what does that speak to? It speaks to my, um, not just stubbornness, but my stupidity of, of not accepting uh, a little bit of medical intervention when uh, it could have made a humongous change in my quality of life. I'd be a better person right now uh, for it if I could have taken Prazosin two decades ago. Wow. Um, and, but at the time, the person that I was before I took Prazosin, well, that was still me still making the best decisions that I could right. based on trying to be the best person I could be chasing awesomeness. Mm. Um, I made those decisions with good faith with myself. It wasn't cause I was trying to, um, uh, I, I wasn't trying to be my worst self. No, totally not. But at the time, not taking anything made sense to me. And at the time, not talking about what I was struggling with made sense to me. And at the time, having nightmares every night made sense to me. Mm. And so I guess one of the points I would be making is I, I'm, I was, I'm, I'm a confident guy. I'm used to be, I'm used to running my own program. I'm, I'm, used to being independent. Uh, I'm used to some level of success in anything that I do. I like to run my own program. And if I could have just listened over the years to some good advice, predominantly from my wife, Doreen, who, who by the way, is freaking amazing and, <laughs> and, and saved me probably a number of times from myself. Uh, not that I have any suicidal ideation or anything like that, but just kind of kept recalibrating me. I'd probably be way off the rails if not for her. 
maybe. Um, but I'm not because she managed to, like a little guardian angel, keep me on, on, on a good forward positive path. But listening to my sister-in-law, the right person at the right time, at the right moment, in that millisecond, my life changed for the better. Isn't it funny how we can get advice from one person and we take it differently than if we got it from somebody else? Correct. And, and not always, and, and by the right person, it could be the wrong person, just the right person at that time. Right. And, and you know, it could be a person sitting on a bus bench mm. waiting for the bus mm. and they just say the right thing at the right time and you never see that person again, but they change the course of your life mm. in a big way. If you can be open. That's it. I think you have to be receptive to it. You have to, to be it. open. Yeah. I, I can think of two examples in my life, just minor things. When I was a kid, baseball, keep your eye on the ball, keep your eye on the ball. And I'm swinging and I can't hit it, swinging and I can't hit it. Finally, someone says, just watch the ball the entire time it comes through and watch it hit your bat and leave. Hmm. Oh, that's what you mean by keep your eye on the ball, right? Just a little bit of a reframing. Hmm. Now I can hit the ball. Hmm. Or, and I remember I was on a, a youngster, I think it was 12, 13 years old, was doing a, a six-week course at Cadets and we're at camp and I was dicking around. like In a, Vernon? In Vernon, yeah. Yeah, I did uh, six weeks in Vernon myself. Oh, did you really? Yeah, Army Cadets. Yeah, so I, I did um, uh, several years there doing, I think this was a, uh, a rifle course for some. They had a, um, um, uh, a rifle course set up strictly and I moved from, they placed me in Alpha Company and they said, that's the one you want to be in because you're doing good, right? And I don't know, I want to be in the rifles, right? And so then they transferred me to Bravo. I'm like, you're not listening. I want to be shooting rifles. So <laughs> anyways, and there I was uh, goofing around. It wasn't on that course. It was a previous one. And um, this guy comes up and, and he was a, a captain. He says, Trav, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just doing doing the typical thing that I do, right? And he says, well, if you're doing it, why, why not? Wouldn't it suck to do this course and spend six weeks of your life and fail? And have to recourse? Well, yeah, that totally suck. So if you're not going to fail, why don't you just be the best? Right. Right? Right. Or try to. And that's the same thing that everyone in the past has said. You know, try your best. Do your best. Go in and do it. But for whatever reason at that time, that was a big life change for me. Okay, if I'm going to put my time in and put my energy in, I'll try to be my best at it. So, But you have to be receptive and the you right person. And, so, and, and the right person, as I said, could be could be just a random person sitting on a bus bench but i would suggest i would argue that it's rarely that and more correctly it's often a person that you respect mm -hmm. and so one of the reasons that i find myself doing um social media nowadays trying to do my best in, in a sense or even this podcast mm -hmm. right now as, as we're talking I'm trying to do my best just to be authentic and natural. But at the same time, I've got this veneer or this overarching theme that is constantly running through my, through my peanut. And that is, <laughs> I got to figure out a way to be able to um, loosely inspire someone else out there to carefully listen to what we're talking about right now and that is um not just do your best but when 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 it feels right when the right person says to you hey bro you got this but i know you got better so go make a mark in the world mm -hmm. however it's explained to you um if if you hear it 
then execute against it. Don't don't let it blow by like leaves in the wind. I mean, yes. you, you when you feel it, yes. reach out and grasp it and hang on for the rest of your life, yes. no matter how wild the ride gets, because that's the beautiful uh, that's a beautiful journey. Yes, I, and I you know that's something in my life just from a a gut level. I get a gut feeling I should do something. The second I get that feeling, I have to execute on it. Mm-hmm. it. I know in the back of my head, if I don't, there's a reason why I had that feeling, whether I was conscious of that reason or not conscious of the reason, I have to now move forward. Likewise, if somebody comes up and makes a suggestion like you do, I'm going to have to sit down really hard and analyze, do I think there's value to that suggestion? And if there's a little bit of me that thinks there's value, okay, I'm going to have to execute on that. Um, yeah, you know, you you you'd said to to me that when you're in cadet camp, someone said, "Hey, well, you know, just do your best." I recall uh, no names. I won't mention any names or what phase of my military military <laughs> career it was. It was quite early, um, but someone was barking at me, barking mm. at me hard uh, with a lot of f bombs mm. as my name was dropped in between f bombs right. and uh, was explaining to me in no uncertain terms that. Um, I needed to get my act together and I needed to demonstrate my best effort. Mm. And if I did, then good things would come of it. And if I didn't, then I would be off that course. Mm. And man, it was explained to me in a way that it made sense at the moment. Right. And, and this is what my young military career mind took as the simple message. Man, if I can do my best, maybe I'll be my best. Right. And, and that led to, you know, uh, a lot of courses that I did, I'd be top candidate, uh, simply not because I was better than anyone else. It's just that I got it in my head that I had to do my best to be my best. And, and generally speaking, that would be the outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd be topping a course or you'd be top three or whatever. I, you know, the numbers aren't that important, but what is important is you would see your best version of yourself at mm. the end of that process. But that only came about because on the daily, I was executing against the task in front of me in the best way that I knew how. And over the course of a week, a month, a decade, the the outcome was you were something that you could be proud of, I suppose. So had that not happened in your early career there... And let's say no one else was able to get that message across in the same way. Would you see your life unfolding rather differently? Like, was that sort of... I think so. Yeah, Yeah, I think so. But, you know, the the reality is, and and to kind of reverse engineer your question... Right. um, It was inevitable that that moment was going to happen. Because I put myself into a environment that it was always going to happen. That I was always going to be faced with someone who was going to challenge me in a right way for me to have a right outcome. Mm. And that that wouldn't have happened if I would have, I don't know, uh, chosen a different career uh, where I wasn't surrounded by strong, competent, mm. capable leaders. Mm-hmm. If, 
if I would have gone down a different route, I wouldn't be the person that I am today mm-hmm. uh, because I wouldn't have been challenged in the same way. And I think what is important in that uh, statement is for any young man or woman that's listening to this right now or, or older, I suppose, sure. if, you're, if you're finding yourself where you're not challenged right now by your uh, immediate surroundings, maybe it's time to go find some people who will challenge you that aren't in your immediate surroundings. Mm-hmm. And I'm not suggesting you've got to start a new hobby or a new martial art or you've got to move to a new country. I'm just saying, start following people who are inspiring right. in, in, in a challenging way where you realize that there's levels to the game and that your baseline performance, though good, can be better. Right can always be better it can always be better funny yeah um you talked about the term ptsd is what you said and you know the term ptsd came to mind uh, i think it's one of these things that i've learned talking with others the dsm what are we on five now i think it's five five point whatever right <laughs> so the term ptsd changes with time it does uh and it evolves as people are trying to get a grasp and they're trying to label these things and Some people will cling to labels in a way that's very productive. They say, okay, I can see this. This is good. And I can put a box around it. I can recognize when something's happening. I can make adjustments. And some people will cling to labels and say, well, that's just me. That's my PTSD and there's nothing I can do. I think there's um, two very different types of personality types there, but it's really important to find the one that's going to bring you to a more proactive level of awesomeness, as you put put it there. And you talked about meds, um, and I know some people said meds keep keeping me away from them. Other people say, no, there's a place for them. Uh, it's another area where I can see, uh, a lot of stigma. I don't want anyone to know that I'm doing meds. I don't know, whatever it might be. Right. Um, I'm no doctor, but I would think that, uh, there's a time and place for meds perhaps they shouldn't have the stigma that they do maybe there's a when they talk about chemical imbalance uh, i don't think anyone can qualitative and quantitatively say what the proper balance should be but there is places where they can help but i think that people still need to have it's like going to physio okay you're seeing the doctor you got your surgery you got your meds you still have to have a process that you're working on physically and mentally so you can get to a point of normalization where you don't don't have don't have to have that and normal is is what right like what is normal if you're happy if things are clicking in your life as abnormal as you might be if you're fitting in with your surroundings and others and you're happy awesome that then that's normal agreed so a few a few different thoughts on it i don't really know about the med one though uh, I'm with you. I'm in the same boat. Why would I want to do medication? Why would I want to alter my, my, my mind in a certain way? But I, there are some that would argue very strongly against me on that one. Yeah, so I'm going to touch on that in a sec, but I want to go to a little bit of a different area that you raised, and rightfully so, and I'm so thankful that you brought it up as a point of that conversation and it was an initial frustration of mine when, when I started um, becoming more involved in the, the mental, uh, mental health space, mental wellness, mm. uh, in specifically with veterans, uh, first responders, and law enforcement. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is uh, widespread or, or it's, it's really common, but there is a, 
there is an element of uh, that demographic that is struggling with mental health where they have chosen to take on that label of, well, I've got PTSD and every day is, is nightmarish. Right. And, and they've, they've, and, and I'm not taking anything away from them. Mm. However long they've been in that, in that space, um, you know, they're, they're doing whatever they're doing. But what I found with some folks is they've, they've, latched onto that title of right and, and and then that becomes them right and it should never become you you I are mean, not correct, your correct, condition correct and and further to that point they now gain some level of satisfaction with being that guy right and it's a sick kind of it, it's a, it's almost a perverse right approach to uh, mental health where they're struggling with their mental health, but they're embracing the the struggle as a good thing rather than something that they need to work through to become a more awesome person. In fact, I would go so far as to say that I've spoken with individuals, I know of individuals who are continuing to slip backwards right. because they are not just latching onto the negative aspects of their mental health, but they are, they're, they're, they're embracing it's, it. it's yeah. their identity. Right. And they, they can't move beyond that negative identity because it makes them feel good to be that person. Uh, it makes them feel good to be that guy or girl who is struggling so hard. And, um, Man, I just, if anyone's in that position, I just wish they would listen to what I'm about to say. And you can do better than that. You, there's no need to slide backwards continuously. And if you can't see the, the necessity to move forward in a more positive manner for yourself, then start seeing it for the team around you. That is amazing. What, what better way to make yourself better than to try to be better for others so that they can see how much improvement you're making on the weekly, monthly, yearly, decade path forward. You could be an inspiration if you just in the next millisecond flip it all on its head and start focusing on being a positive guiding leader rather than staying immersed in that negative quagmire of a negative self-identity. That's almost like the perfect place to end a podcast. Too. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's amazing. Um, was there anything that we should be talking about that we haven't? I know we, we touched on your book there. I'm, I'm looking up at my one camera and it's uh, blinking at me for some reason. I'm wondering if it's reading the smaller card instead of the bigger card. So I'll, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll make an adjustment if we need to. Check. Um, oh, there, there is, when you, we were talking about medication, yes. there's one thing that I would like to add to that as well. Um, I also have a medical prescription for cannabis, so CBD and THC. So okay. I'm on medical grade uh, CBD and THC. And what I found for myself is that 
medical grade CBD makes a huge impact for me. Um, the endocannabinoid system, if, if you know anyone out there has never heard the term, I'd suggest you look into it. Mm. Um, there's certainly a lot of positives to cannabis. And for me, uh, in respect to uh, inflammation or um, you know, I, uh, I, I did have some physical trauma when I was in on the sure. teams blowing up and stuff. And so I find that uh, my brain fog is significantly reduced because of CBD and THC. And, and oh. I'm not like a, I'm not like a hippie that's partying up. Like there's no tomorrow. I use it specifically and, and with a science minded approach towards uh, CBD and THC. Uh, on a minimum basis Mm. for a maximum effect throughout my day, throughout my life. And so if, if someone out there is considering ways to either improve their mental health space or mitigate some of the negative thoughts that they're having, that is an option for uh, a certain demographic. I know another tier one fellow who went over to Costa Rica to further explore, um, psilocybin and, and, and different effects on uh of the mushrooms and stuff for the mm-hmm. for the use of uh, uh ptsd mm-hmm. and uh, actually gave me a book to uh to read through and educate myself which i think we mentioned before the podcast i got about 30 books on the go right now all of them at different places some i start in the middle some at the beginnings so i'm somewhere in that book so if he's listening i'm i am making my way through that but uh, well, there, so I, I too believe in that as well, and and I've been down to South America for a number of variety of reasons, work and pleasure, and and while I was down there, I I got involved in in a uh, experience uh, with ayahuasca and mm. San Pedro cactus uh, that was quite beneficial, uh, an unplanned thing and probably less structured than it should have been, <laughs> but uh, you know that's an entirely different story sure. unto itself, but in respect to psilocybin. And um, I have, um, I won't say experimented, but I have considered it uh, in, a, in a number of ways over a period of time. And so I have microdosed mm. psilocybin over the last nearly 20 years, certainly last 15 years for sure. And it's been helpful. Uh, it's very helpful. And by, by microdosing, if anyone's listening out there, uh, I mean like 0.2 grams of mm. uh, psilocybin scaled out on a very precise measurement. I'm, I'm not the kind of guy who throws caution to the wind when it comes to these kind of things. Right. So, um, uh, I think that there, for the right person at the right time, under the right conditions, I think there's benefits to plant medicine for sure. That's interesting because I always thought that the idea behind that, I, I remember reading an article and they said if a person was knocked unconscious and they were given the psilocybin and then they're woken up afterwards, would they have the same positive effects that they're finding in these studies if they didn't actually experience anything? And the answer is no. Mm-hmm. And that these people actually needed, was it the set and the setting? I think they, right, right. set and setting, yeah. And they needed to have that experience in order to have the positive effects later on. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I think you're right. It, you're, and you're right to raise the point. I don't believe it's, you cannot just simply bumble into this thing mm-hmm. and, and flip a coin. Oh, it's heads. Then I'm going to go with this dose instead of that right. dose. And it's going to happen right now instead of planned tomorrow. There, it's something that should be treated with due caution. 
Mm. uh, but it should be considered as a positive rather than a negative. And to think of it as a positive, you have to consider it more fully rather than just, uh, well, let's see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Okay. Um, Maybe your book. Did you want to touch on that a little bit? Sure, I can touch on it. And and I will start by saying, first of all, that the book kind of came about um, unexpectedly. And it was because Seb had come into Rosalind so that we could meet and hang out a little bit. And through a process, we ended up recording for over the course of seven days uh, a once in the morning, once in the afternoon, we recorded 25 hours of audio mm. on a number of subjects, leadership and this, that, and the other thing. And uh, Seb says there's a lot of gold in there. And, and I mean, anything that Seb's involved in is going to have gems. So, <laughs> um, and at, at the end of it, I said, so what do we have here? Because I wasn't really yeah. clear on what we were doing and per se. Mm. And he said, I, this is a book that you're looking at. And I said, okay, that's cool. Um, and so he, since then, uh, there has been a uh, transcriber involved and there has been an editor involved. And uh, as you know, the process pr- takes some time. It does, yeah. I've, I've done a book myself in the past in an unrelated field, which uh, is unimportant. And so the the process takes time. Here's where I'm at with it right now, and, and perhaps Seb is at the same point as well. We, we were going to talk this week, but we haven't got around to it since mm. I came back from Europe. Um, in my opinion, whether it turns into a book or whether it turns into a cartoon series <laughs> is, uh, is less important to me than the process. And so those 25 hours of audio recorded material were extremely important for Seb and I to not only gain an extremely strong relationship, just as you and I are doing right now, Mm. when we first started recording this, and now as we come towards the end of it, our relationship is better because we've shared some moments together. We've in real time got to know each other. Well, that's what Seb and I did over those 25 hours of recorded material. I, I think of him as a brother right yeah. now from another mother for sure he's an awesome dude he is but i wouldn't have thought that uh pre 25 hours of, of of that recorded week and so uh i'll go to the ends of the earth for that guy and but i couldn't have said that before we shared all of that time together so what what will it turn into it's anyone's guess but what it's already achieved for me is is a home run that's amazing. for sure and so perhaps it will be leaked audio in conjunction with some visuals. Uh, uh, we'll see where it all goes. Again, it's unimportant to me where it goes. I know a lot of people mm. are, are really tugging on my sleeve and saying, when's the book? I got to read the book. The book's going to be awesome, et cetera. And perhaps, and I'm not sure when, but if it doesn't turn into a book, uh, make, make no mistake, it was worth every minute and good will come of it. I really like that approach, not just to a project or making a book, but an approach to life. Yeah, for sure. And and by the way, one of my central themes throughout my life, uh, actually since 
um, I joined the military, is turning things into tenure programs or tenure projects. And when I turned 52, I started a tenure project called BJJ. Mm. And uh, I'd been doing martial arts up to that point for about, I think, 32-ish years or something like that. And uh, so, yeah, 32 years. I'm now plus 40 years of uh, martial arts. And, wow. But when I turned 52 that week, I tied on a white belt in BJJ because I was going to start a new project. Mm. And how I frame things is it's a 10-year project. I'll see where this goes. I'll give it my best effort. And at the end of those 10 years, I'll, I'll reassess. Now I know how it's going to go, mm. as it does with all of my projects. Yep. I'm 12, I'm 15, I'm 18 years into it at that mm -hmm. point because... Man, if you put yourself into something, if you commit to something, somewhere along the way, you'll realize the value of commitment and you'll realize why you committed to that thing. And then the rest takes care of itself. Sean, I think that's a great way to wrap it up before this light keeps blinking. I'm sure it's, it's getting faster and faster. It must mean something. It does. <laughs> it means we're, we're reaching peak awesomeness. Peak awesome. <laughs> Thank you very much for opening up your home. Thank you so much for being on the Silver Crow Podcast. I really had a great time chatting with you. It was all my pleasure, believe me. 